I spoke about um, sati earlier. Was it this morning? Yesterday morning? I don't remember. But that sense of entering into and the difference than the usual way we speak about that as being mindful of and the, the way that can imply a distance and looking at uh, as being separate from experience. And partly in response to some conversations about that and some of you finding that helpful and partly in response to some other questions about terminology, I thought I'd just tease apart some of the words we use and hopefully try to disambiguate some of the terminology that I think sometimes gets used in in imprecise and possibly confusing ways. And you know, I would include myself in that. I was, as I said earlier, I tried to be precise with the language, and yet, you know, inevitably, I think some of these terms overlap. Some of them, um, the meanings aren't fully distinct. Some of them are, are kind of clumsy or partial translations from the original, from the Pali language. So I want to look particularly at the terms like consciousness, awareness, presence, attention, and see what do we mean, and see if we might actually further discriminate or discern the nuances within those different terms. So I'll also want to refer, I'll refer to the original terms, the Pali terms. And I do that, one, because some of you are kind of steeped in this stuff and will know those references, or maybe don't know them but would like to know them. But I also want to add the caveat that if there's no need to know Pali words. Right? And if you find yourself not interested in the Pali words, that's fine. Just don't let the foreignness or exoticism or, or strangeness of the words disconnect you. Because the, the point isn't to learn terminology, right? English or Pali. The point is to find ways of, ah, oh, of, and, and the reason I want to speak about these things is to kind of facilitate the skill and the sensitivity and the nuance with which we, we explore experience. So, consciousness. Hmm. Some of these words, it's a little ambitious in some ways to, to try to define them. It's particularly consciousness and awareness, which sometimes we might find used interchangeably. And there's, fundamentally, consciousness and awareness are mysterious in their nature. When we talk about um, understanding consciousness or um, uh, developing a consciousness being conscious, etc. Sometimes we, we hear consciousness spoken of with a capital C, consciousness, uh, which sort of reifies it in some way, distinct from you know, the small c. So the Pali term I'm thinking of is vijnana. And in the, in the, um, in the Buddha's unpacking of the description of mind, or description of experience, and description of, of how to engage with experience. Consciousness is, is one of the inherent aspects of experience. Right? To have an experience is to be conscious. You can't have an experience and not have any consciousness in it. 
Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to point to it as an experience. Right? The fact that we can say, oh, this happened to me, I remember this, or this is happening to me. Right? The, the fact, the part of the experience which is the knowing that it's happening, or knowing that it happened, that's the vijnana. Vijnana forms, there's these different elements in the tradition, five elements, right? the uh, rupa, the form, experience, and bodily life. The, the feeling that goes with a particular experience, like we've been exploring, it's present or unpleasant or neutral. Right? The perception that goes with the experience, the recognition that says, oh, it's this. Oh, I feel cold. Oh, it's a dog, etc. And then there are the sankharas, the mind formations, which we've been looking at this morning. Right? The way we, we make sense of and add a sense of meaning, the way we build a relationship to the experience. Right. Oh, that reminds me of such and such. Oh, that makes me feel. Oh, it's a dog. It's so cute. It's lovely. I remember when I had a dog, etc. Right. The kind of the packing around an experience, the attitude towards it, the the concepts that support the familiarity or unfamiliarity of it, etc. And then the fifth aspect of that, just the the knowing of it, right. the fact that it's arising in such a way that the that that it can become what we call experience. The most common experience, references for experience are, for, uh, sorry, the most common references for consciousness, the things we form, the, the main sense of experience around, are self and world. And we tend to think of self and world as fixed entities. This is the self over here, and that's the world out there. But when we start to really attend to consciousness, those, those are very modulable, those reference points. The most common way of experiencing, there seems to be a self and a world. Right? I'm seeing a dog, for example. Or I'm doing this. And as you sit here now, maybe, probably, one can identify what one recognises as a sense of self, the one sitting here, the one listening, the one thinking, the one agreeing or disagreeing or unsure. And then, you know, the one... The, the world around that, which is what one can see, what can, one can hear, what one's making sense of, etc. So that's the most common way experience, uh, consciousness is engaging with reality. Time and space are the other most familiar reference points. We were exploring in one of the groups recently how you know, time seems like such a, a real reference point, and yet it can actually break down very much. Um, sometimes in meditation, the sense of the timelessness, the, the way, the immediacy of knowing, such that not just past and present, but even, uh, sorry, not just past and future, but even present, all reference to time can kind of collapse into just the kind of edgeless immediacy of experience. And even in a conventional sense, we see that time, you know, clocks and watches move in an orderly fashion, as long as the batteries are working. Right? But time doesn't move in an orderly fashion. Time subjective. Sometimes time seems to go very fast. And, you know, time flies when you're having fun. 
as you say. Sometimes time seems to go very slowly. When you're meditating, for example, when you're waiting for the bell to ring. And, and time, so time, our sense of time, our experience of time, our consciousness in relation to what we call time, changes as our attitude changes, as our state changes. And likewise, as I say, with these reference points of self and world, so usually consciousness of self, consciousness of world. But sometimes the consci- there can be consciousness pretty much only of self. We actually call that being self-conscious. When one gets so fixated on me, 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 what's happening in me? What am I like? What should I be like? What are they thinking about me? The self-consciousness of the world sort of fades, that reference point. It's just all about me. You get fixated in some loop of self-obsession, self-centeredness, self-consciousness. Where the sense of me actually takes up all of our experience. It sort of fills consciousness. In other moments, the sense of self can, can fade out. And the sense of the world fills consciousness. And sometimes it's a kind of trance-like state or absorption state. What's called being in the zone in sport. And you might find some particularly pleasurable activity or sometimes in the face of kind of beauty of nature and one might kind of lose oneself in the experience. It's the exact opposite of self-consciousness. Self-consciousness is kind of one's just the, the fussing with me just cools out, fades away, dissolves, disappears in the beauty or in the activity, in the music, whatever it might be. Often very beautiful moments, seductive moments. There's something kind of relieving about losing, however temporarily, our self-consciousness. I can't remember the exact line, maybe somebody else remembers, by uh, Jimi Hendrix. And he's talking about that kind of complete abandonment in music the complete loss of self-consciousness completely being kind of being one with the music self disappearing into the the world in that moment into the the the, the, the activity the sensation the, the beauty it talks about the sweetness of music and then but what about the rest and it's often the case for people if if there's a sphere particularly with artists often, it's like the, the, where the art becomes an avenue for the disappearance of self-consciousness. And one sees great beauty and kind of genius flourish in that. But the contrast is often very painful between that place where I can kind of disappear into beauty and, and oneness in some way, and then, oh my goodness, when I stop playing the music or I finish the painting... Whatever it is, and then it's like, oh, I've got to deal with this thing called life, and this clunky realm suddenly where there's a self and a world, and I've got to negotiate with it. So, in different ways, in different degrees, we all know these different types of the ways consciousness can relate to to these reference points, can build experience. In other moments, it's less common. It's more actually the the, the domain of contemplative or meditative life both self and world can 
disappear. Just that sense of a kind of um, edgeless, all-encompassing field of awareness. Whereas all the differentiation, all the referencing, all the conceptualizing, all the difference-making, time, space, self, world, before, after, here, there, in, out, just kind of softens, thins out, collapses in some way. So all of those are are varieties of experience that consciousness can know. And consciousness is just a completely given part of experience. It's always, even when I was a child, it always struck me as kind of strange, even before I knew anything about consciousness or started to practice Dharma, it always struck me as strange that there seemed to be this scientific debate about whether or not animals have consciousness. And very, very recently, like, it's still not widely acknowledged actually, but it's very recently that occasionally some or other scientific community or some or other government will decide in some great impressive decree that certain mammals might be conscious. (laughs) Extraordinary. Extraordinary extraordinary human arrogance to assume that consciousness is the private domain of human beings. Just extraordinary. Have these people never looked in the eyes of a dog or a cow or, or anything? Any other living being? It makes me wonder, what, what, what's the criteria for consciousness? Consciousness is... That one of those integral components of experience. Uh, maybe no other dogs, but my dog is definitely conscious. <laughs> but then, so then, vinyana awareness. So, you know, people might differ, uh, um, define awareness in different ways, and my intention isn't isn't to define it in an abstract sense, in an absolute sense, but much more in an operational sense, right? I'm not trying to come up with um, truths about what these things are. I'm interested in us in us uh, you know, relating more clearly, more skillfully to experience. So um, we speak a lot about awareness on retreat. The Pali word I'm thinking of is sampajanya, which literally means clear knowing. Clear knowing. And awareness is that uh, function of consciousness where I would say where experience kind of comes into clear view. Right? So consciousness is always there whenever there's an experience. But often we're not aware of what's happening. In other words, we don't know that we're knowing. It's interesting, but the Latin name we give to human beings is that homo sapiens sapiens, means the one that knows that they know. This capacity that we to actually have reflective consciousness, to not just experience, but to be able to be aware of experience, or another way of saying that, to be able to relate to experience, to be able to actually intervene with experience, to say, oh, okay, this is what I'm experiencing, 
Let me enter into that. Let me explore that. And then, of course, the debate uh, becomes a bit more interesting about non-humans and how much self-reflective consciousness others may have. But we don't know. It's much more difficult to ascertain. Right? I don't know how reflective my dog is. I wonder. I ask him, but I don't understand his answers. It is interesting, though, that dolphins have recently been... I was just reading this recently, that uh, people working with dolphins now reckon that dolphins have about 60,000 terms or different equivalents of words. 60,000 different communications between them. That's more than the words that there are in Spanish. Or French. Not more the words than there are in French, but more words than there are in common usage in French, which is about 50,000. English has about 100,000. Dolphin has 60,000. <laughs> How wild is that? Anyway, it's easy to digress. So awareness, the way in which we can kind of come into contact with experience. Right? Often, I mean, my consciousness might be there, right, which forming experience, but it's sort of going along in, a, in an automatic way, in a purely conditioned way, in an unexamined way, right? in a Pavlovian way. So we go along being pulled and pushed around by our conditioning. We were talking about that yesterday, right, in terms of control and conditioning. And so, in a way, what we're, what we're doing with this kind of practice, I've been calling it, putting it under the microscope, right, is we're bringing just the ordinary stuff of experience, right? consciousness and perceptions and feelings and sensations and sensory inputs, and we're bringing awareness to that we're saying let's engage let's enter into and awareness is probably the most difficult of all these terms to to, to pin down because in some ways it's a very innate capacity it's always available And I've been pointing to that a lot in the instruction, saying, hey, all the ingredients of meditation are already here. Awareness is already here. It's, it's tricky because in some ways it's like it's, we might say, well, it's not already here. I've been sitting in meditation and I've been here and there and here and there and clearly unaware. But in the moment that we recognize, in the moment that I say it's already here, it's already here. That's one of the interesting things. It's one of the reasons I've been uh, often emphasised paying attention to those, those moments of waking up in meditation. We say, oh, I woke up. Oh, yes, I was caught up. But then I woke up. Is that true? When we really look at it, I find I can't take any credit, really, for that waking up. Me, what I get the credit for is the getting lost. Right? Oh, thinking about this, thinking about that. But... The inherent luminosity of mind, which might be another way of speaking about awareness, the inherent hereness of life is such that however much I get caught up in experience, however deep down the rabbit hole I go, 
sooner or later, life's imminence, life's here-ness, life's the luminosity of awareness just imposes itself. It says, hello, hello. Sometimes that hello comes in the form of me sitting in the meditation saying to you, where's your attention now? And you go, <laughs> oh, yes, oh, right. right. <laughs> and sometimes it just comes in the form of just that, that moment. Life wakes you up. It's a much more accurate way to, to speak about it, actually. I've been caught up and then life wakes me up. And if we really, if we attend to the mysteriousness of that process, the fact that we're constantly being called back to hearness, and we might meditate and think, oh my goodness, I get so lost in thought and so caught up. But actually, it's amazing how uncaught up, really, we get. And you might say, yeah, well, I was just off for 20 minutes, uh, you know, thinking about such and such. But exactly, that's how remarkable it is that we can go off and then the imminence of things, the hereness of things. It's like there's, a, there's way, way more of a force kind of like grounding us in in hereness than there is in all of our little petty dramas pulling ourselves in different directions. And part of the deepening of meditation is starting to kind of taste that and f- uh, allow that sort of gravitational pull of hereness to just hold us here to find a kind of constancy of awareness so that whatever dramas whatever thought forms whatever impulses whatever compulsions whatever fears arise they don't really get so much purchase anymore because there's a sampajanya there's a kind of clear knowing that's running through experience And at the beginning of a practice, that that clear knowing can seem um, uh, difficult to find, or, or fragile, or available in glimpses. And the very, but the very nature of a deepening practice is what seems initially like glimpses. It's as if we're looking through, uh, you know, looking through trees, dense leaves. And we see, think the sun is just available in glimpses. We see, oh, there's just a point of sunlight in there and a point of sunlight there. Actually, there's a full sky of light. Right? It's just that the leaves are obscuring it. In the same way, our, our habits and our fixations and our, our kind of our tendency to keep being seduced by all these thought forms gives us the impression that awareness is somehow fragile or, f- or fleeting or, or fragmented. And yet we increasingly just start to see through those four thought forms to a genuinely sampa janya, clear knowing, reliable knowing, and more and more constant knowing. So then presence, Pali word, sati, usual translation, which I'm saying I'm not so keen on, mindfulness, is the gathering that can happen, right? Grounded in awareness, like we've been saying, Buddha's instructions, establishing oneself in awareness. One gathers, recalls attention. And the fact that we can actually, we can focus this basic capacity we have to know, we can focus it. 
We can steady it. We can ground ourselves in it. It starts to give us a lot of um, possibility with how to use our mind. Most people don't have much possibility. Right? We're just using our mind in habitual ways. We develop it. We go through a developmental process through childhood. We develop language. We develop boundaries, like we were saying yesterday. We develop willpower. We develop uh, a basic sense of self. And at some rather tragically early point in our human progression, the development stops and we become some version or other of what we call an adult. We sometimes don't actually feel very adult inside, but the world tells us we're an adult. We think, okay, I better get with the program. And then we go on trying to be an adult or pretending to be an adult or occasionally even believing we are an adult. As if an adult is a fixed thing and a stopped thing. Actually, there's there's so much capacity to develop how we function, how we understand, how we respond to life. That goes way beyond the kind of the the average sort of development. And as we start to establish the, the kind of the basic clear light of awareness that's fundamental to our nature. And then as we start to get some skill in gathering, focusing, grounding that attention, which we call being present, sati, being mindful, if you like, then experience really starts to be able to open up to us, reveal its nature to us. So then attention. It would seem that attention might be the easiest of those terms to, to define or explain or explore. Right? Attention basically is the, the way we can move the focus of our mind to a particular area of experience. But they tend to, they, it turns out to have a lot of subtlety, fineness to it. So firstly, I, actually I want to just explore the term samadhi. Samadhi has a, a, a different meaning in the Pali than it does in Sanskrit. So in the yoga traditions, samadhi is often um, referred to as meaning a kind of a state of a very unified mind or a state of concentration. And it doesn't have that connotation actually in Pali, even though it, the, that, the, the sort of yogic um, term samadhi tends to bleed into Buddhism a lot and I hear you know, people within the Buddhist world speaking about samadhi in that way but it's actually the connotation in the tradition is much more that samadhi means mind training it's the process of working in a meditative way sama samadhi referred to kind of refining samadhi it's like refining one's practice the way one trains one's mind. Kanika samadhi, the term the Buddha uses, means moment-to-moment samadhi. Moment-to-moment mind training. Moment-to-moment attending. And interestingly, that's closer to what we often hear spoken about of mindfulness. right? Moment-to-moment attention. Kanika samadhi. The way we can kind of, there's a certain training, moment by moment, moment by moment. That's since I've been speaking of, of whatever you support, whatever you feed, that's what grows. 
So moment to moment, it's like we're building a certain momentum of samadhi, of mind training. Over these days, we built up a certain momentum of practice, a certain momentum of the power of attention and, the, and, the, and where and how you focus it. It may, especially if you're not so familiar with the retreat process, you may not understand or you may underestimate how much momentum, how much power of mind, how much mind training you've done over these days. Sometimes it's most obvious actually at the end of a retreat where we then go back into the, the more familiar rhythms and relationships and situations of our life and find, oh, something's different. There's more samadhi. The mind is more trained, more sensitivity, more clarity, more focus, more capacity to recognize what's going on. More, um, more way of seeing when reactivity starts to get triggered and more capacity to soften it, to not make such a drama out of things. And there's both the momentum that's built up in this kind of environment, right? This is kind of a concentrated form of samadhi, of mind training, meditation retreat. But then there's also equally important, and I'll speak about this towards the end of the retreat, the momentum of just a kind of a certain regularity of daily practice. Attention, manisikar, um, Sort of the direct etymological translation would be sort of like mind doing, which is a sort of clunky construction, attention. And interesting, I was talking about this in one of the groups, Buddha makes a clear differentiation between the two types of attention, yoniso and ayoniso. It basically translates as disembodied or embodied attention. So most habitual attention is disembodied, right? We're thinking about, we're giving attention to our descriptions, our interpretations, our narrative about what's happening. And we notice that when we come to sit and we realise you know, that we're narrating our lives or recalling our lives. We're thinking about stuff rather than being attuned to, with, inside what's happening. So making that shift, which is again is a big part of our practice here, from the habit of ayoniso, disembodied, to the capacity for yoniso, embodied attention. And yoni in Pali can can mean vagina, but more specifically actually means womb. Womb. So yoniso means from the womb. Yoniso manisikara. Womb-born mind activity. It might seem like a strange construction, but that's what goes along with this encouragement I've been giving to kind of come down, down into an embodied attention or an embellied attention, a womby intention, uh, attention. And you know, belly is a. A powerful energetic center. It's a, it's a center of intelligence. Right? If if the head is the, the sort of center of intuitive or cognitive intelligence, and the heart area, the chest, is the center of um, emotional intelligence, belly is the center of embodied intelligence. And again, it's interesting. Those of you who follow kind of scientific stuff, 
this this recent excitement and and uh, and also confusion about the fact that the belly has got more neurons in it than the brain no surprise to a contemplative actually no surprise to those big fat japanese buddhas we spoke about the other day were which those statues of which are a are a you know, symbol of that yoni sumanisikara have your attention grounded down in the womb and of course we think of a womb as a female organ but in this sense you know the womb what's the womb it's the cradle of life the source of life and in that sense a very beautiful image for this kind of an attention that has its source and its ground and its depth way down source of experience the source of life the source of that which we attend to the source of where our attention comes from embodied attention and then there are three particular ways of giving attention to experience which are important the three V's, Vitaka, Vichara, Viveka. And I'll just speak about them uh, briefly. And again, the, the intention isn't to kind of uh, make much of the definitions, but rather to sense into the experience. Vitaka is like pointing attention. I liken it to the finger. It points. It's that aspect of attention that can say, oh, let's go there. And we've been, we were speaking about this a little bit this morning, right? Because, take one's attention to what's happening. But we also want to take our attention to um, a skillful object. Sometimes there may be one aspect of what's happening, it's just, it's too much to be with, or it's unhelpful to be with. Sometimes you take one's, you know, if you're just having some kind of compulsive fantasy, if you take your attention there, You just feed the compulsive fantasy. So it's not just the capacity to point our attention, it's the the skillfulness about where we point it and how we point it. We point it to something useful. Something useful about breath and body often, because it has this kind of unifying, grounding effect. Something useful about using belly as a focal point. And maybe for one or other reason that uh, some, some area of experience, physical experience, mental experience, isn't helpful. Sometimes if there's some very painful memory or some trauma that we know it still has a lot of activation in it, it's actually it's not helpful to point our attention in that direction. It just, it's just too stimulating. It's too re-triggering. Sometimes it's much more helpful to steer one's attention to something that's soothing, that's relieving, that's reassuring. So there's the the where we point our attention or what we point it to. And there's also then the how we point it. Pointing an attention in a kind way, in a gentle way, in a generous way. Often for most of us the habit is... 
and this is mostly going on unconsciously, right? we just point our attention in a harsh way or a suspicious way or an intolerant way, particularly to our own experience. What's happening? Why is it like that? It shouldn't be like that. What's the matter with me? Well, we find, you know, even that's often a sort of unconscious habit, that even when we try to make our attention conscious, we try to really point to, skillfully towards our experience in, in contemplative practice, in meditation, that still it can have that edge of a certain harshness to it. You can often most notice that in the moment that when you wake up from having been caught up in some drama. And just to see, how do, what do you do with your attention? We might say, oh, I'm going to try to come back to the breath. But how often there's some sort of blame in there, some disappointment, some like, there you go again, how long was that? What's the matter with you, you bloody useless meditator? Come on, let's get back to the breath. God, terrible encouragement to come back to the breath. It's like having some uptight school teacher you know, leaning over the shoulder of your desk and saying, you, you, why are you doing it like that? What's the matter with you? Just get resentful about attending to our experience. So then the, the how we point our attention, Mitaka, oh, to point kindly. You point kindly, that's how your attention enters into experience. Oh, let me see what's happening here. Let me attend to, let me feel into, let me find out about, let me listen to. And those words that we've been using, intimacy with experience, inhabiting experience, the embrace of awareness. Those words are meant to inculcate a certain tenderness. A way of being gentle and generous with ourselves and with what's happening moment by moment. Like we said, it can be hard to be here, hard to sit with ourselves. And if we don't find a gentle and generous way to be with ourselves, it becomes just pretty much impossible. Dry, hard, hopeless. And so over time we get more skillful with the what we point our attention to, recognizing what's a useful object and the how, and actually learning. And most of us really need to learn how to be gentle and generous with ourselves. How to hold ourselves lightly, gently, forgivingly, kindly. And then there's the second aspect of attention, we call it Vichara. So if vitaka is the finger that points to a different, a different aspects of experience, vichara is like more like the palm of the hand that feels, that gets to know, that becomes familiar with, that handles, literally, like the palm of your hand. You handle experience. It's a different aspect of attention. Right? You're getting a feel for what, oh, what this mind state's like. You get to know its texture. Right? You can get the feel of, of impatience, or of boredom, or of confusion, or of joy, or of expansion. And start to actually get, get the feel, we become more familiar with the way our experience is. 
more able to to accommodate different flavours, different textures, different tones of experience. Less kind of um, just less compulsion, less making much out of each different mind state. Less caught just because there's boredom that's arisen for now. So rather than just living out of all the thoughts of boredom, why am I here? This is such a waste of time. What would be more interesting? We actually find we get interested in boredom. Oh, what's it like? Oh, it has this kind of cloudy grey quality to it. Oh yeah, it sort of generates the idea, the message, there's nothing of interest here, there's nothing of value here. Oh, okay, let me keep let me stay with that, let me handle that bottom side, start to feel the thickness of it. The views that arise in it saying nothing worthwhile. I stay here, I see that actually ironically even though the message of boredom is that there's nothing interesting here, ironically, when we really feel it out, boredom is quite interesting. It's given interest by the willing, the, the vichara, the handling it. Um, there's, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of what we learn as a, as a practice like this really deepens, we learn how to feel out experience, how to inquire into experience. A lot of the online courses that I that I do um, are really around developing the vichara aspect of, of practice in many ways, like how to inquire into experience, and sometimes using relational inquiries and dialogue exercises, and as well as the kind of meditative inquiry, supporting our capacity to, to handle, to feel into, to get familiar with, and. You know, sometimes insight can arise in a flash and be you know, powerful and profound. But this particular quality of vichara, it seems to me, it's something that just it takes it takes time and a certain maturing and deepening and ripening to really appreciate how to really feel into experience and also to really appreciate the the depth and dimensionality of that kind of exploring. And then viveka, the third kind of attention. So if vitaka is the finger pointing, vichara is the, the hand feeling, handling. Viveka is kind of like the, just the arms embracing. There's a sense of a kind of wide openness, spaciousness. Attention, just holding what's here in a wide way, open way, spacious way. Viveka is that attention where the reactivity is really uh, dropping away or has dropped away. Viveka is that kind of open embrace where we can really feel that, and someone was asking about this the other day, where the kind of the habit energy of reactivity just it starts to get burned up. Because it's, it's, there's room for it to fizz and pop and yes but and what if and yes and one can feel the kind of the old habits the old impulses the old sankharas in Buddhist language and yet that spaciousness it's like one's just not invested so much one's not involved so much one's not creating drama one's not following the impulses 
And if whatever you feed, that's what grows, whatever you stop feeding, that's what dies. Viveka is really the place where old sankharas come to die. <laughs> and you might get a taste of that. Right? I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of depth and dimension to all these different three qualities, but we get a taste of all three of those. However far into this practice we are, however, whatever kind of strange measuring we do of our practice, so we've been learning over these days to point our attention and learning to point it skillfully, kindly and learning to feel out experience and like, just like with today's and this morning's exploration of the different states of mind right? this weather of the mind allow, we allow to show up and pass through and there's moments where we really touch a sense of oh, this capacity to let experience be. This capacity to hold it all lightly, spaciously, easefully. Viveka is that, that kind of attention where, the, where our, as the reactivity um, softens, ease, steadiness grows in its place. So, like I say, all the ingredients of meditation are here. These ways of looking at mind and looking at the functions of mind, looking at the ways of approaching experience. You don't need to remember them all. Maybe, as I say, the, the, the intention is just to point to what's already happening and see how we can bring, oh, maybe there's one of those terms that helps to bring a little more gentleness in our, how I hold experience. Maybe there's one of those terms that shows us in the moment, oh, how I can actually have a kind of spacious embrace of what's happening now. Any of those qualities, you know, all of those qualities, of course, functioning together, but don't try to get them all functioning together necessarily. But whatever, whatever seems like it's of some use in this moment, in any given moment, with any particular experience, trust in the goodness of that quality. And experience will keep opening up. And this clear field of knowing will become more obvious. Capacity to skillful to gather and skillfully and kindly direct our attention will increase. This understanding of our mind through really handling our different experiences will get stronger. And this wide open space in which we can let it all do its thing will become increasingly part of our nature. Oh, please stay close to your experience as the moments and the days go 